welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. For the first time in almost 90 years, a California judge has been removed from office by the state's voters because of a lenient sentence in a sexual assault case. In 2016, Santa Clara County Superior Court Judge Aaron Persky sentenced Stanford student Brock Turner to just six months in jail for sexually assaulting a woman who was unconscious. Prosecutors had asked for six years. Persky spoke with CBS News before the recall vote. If a judge is thinking in the back of his or her mind, how is this going to look? How will it look on social media? Will I be vilified on cable news? That's the wrong avenue. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. And we shouldn't put judges in a position where they fear it. Joining me is Joshua Spivak, senior fellow at the Hugh Carey Institute for Government Reform at Wagner College and founder of the Recall Elections blog. Joshua, is this an isolated case or are there implications for the future? There doesn't seem to be too many. There aren't too many possibilities of a recall of judges. Uh, They don't happen frequently. The last one in the U.S. was 1977, where somebody was removed, and the last time they even got one on the ballot was 1982, uh, both in Wisconsin. Uh, So... Well, there's always talk whenever there's a decision, uh, whenever there's a controversial decision. Uh, for instance, Prop 8, when that came down, there was threats of a recall. Uh, a famous California Supreme Court chief judge faced constant threats of a recall. Uh, eventually, she was removed by a retention election. But it's very hard to get it on the ballot. So that's you would need sort of the firestorm of criticism and, uh, as happened in this case, a lot of money um, to, to do the, the real hurdle is getting the signatures. Uh, so to get the recall to the ballot is the problem. Who spearheaded this recall effort and where did the money come from? Uh, it was a Stanford University professor uh, who, who led the effort, and they seemed to raise the money you know, on virally and on social media, and they did a very good job fundraising and then using it effectively to, to get the signatures. Uh, so it is possible to get this type of action together. It's just quite difficult. So I, I want to talk about some of Judge Persky's responses. He had said that he had a legal and professional responsibility to consider alternatives to imprisonment for first-time offenders. Is that a valid concern? I think that is, there's always this concern with recalls. How, what should they be allowed for? Uh, what should they be used against judges? And from the very beginning in California, there was a real debate of whether the recall should be extended to judges. A number of states do not extend it to judges for that reason. And, uh, for instance, William Howard Taft actually vetoed the Arizona Constitution originally until they removed a recall of judge provision. So this is a long-time debate. Uh, it hasn't played out too much simply because there haven't been too many uh judge recalls in U.S. history. So Judge Persky claimed that 
A recall causes judges to consider the reaction in social media and the news when sentencing someone and that it's an attack on judicial independence. What are the responses to that? They seem pretty good arguments. Yes, and I think that actually the response is that is the goal, that um, recalls when they were adopted were to uh, give uh, push officials to have more of a response to popular opinion, and in, including in that is was judges. Uh, so he's not wrong. It's just the the opinion, the desire to have a recall, is in many ways pushing that exact point. That yes, we do want the judges to have more of a feeling of what the popular will is. Uh, so Let's go ahead. So, oh, so it's really how how valuable is that? Uh, how is that dangerous, or is that a positive? As the doctors of the recall stop. What they did in this case, the sentence and the backlash prompted California lawmakers to change the law. That seems a good response to this. Yeah. So that again, that's very much in keeping with the ideology of the recall that. You would be able to do this. You would be able to get a recall on the ballot. You'd be able to exhibit voter anger and show it, and uh, there would be a reaction from elected officials. So this is, in many ways, part and parcel of the whole direct democracy movement. Does it make judges more political than they already are? Uh, It's hard to say that (laughs) one or two recalls would do that, Mm. uh, but judges have been... Overall, throughout the country, uh, there does seem to be more of a focus on the political politicalization of judges, though uh, since they're elected officials in many states, that's not a surprise. Um, but we saw the Iowa judges removed for uh, their votes on gay marriage. Uh, the Wisconsin judge elections were very highly contested. Uh, and West Virginia had the same thing, where these just the appointment of judges becomes a major issue. In many ways, that was one of the primary motivations in the uh, 2016 election on the Supreme Court, and it does seem to be a push for the Republicans in Congress, maybe their single biggest issue. So the recall sort of fits in with that uh, whole politicalization of the judiciary. We should mention that Supreme Court justices and federal court judges cannot be recalled. They're there for life. Um, A 2015 study of elected state judges by NYU Law School concluded that judges are influenced by their election cycles. The study showed judges issuing longer sentences for serious felony conviction when they're close to re-election. Now, that that seems like it's a a bad um, result of having elected judges. Do you favor appointed judges or elected judges? Uh, You know, I, I don't know. Which is better? I've seen in New York uh, there there's some a lot of negatives to having elected judges. There were some corruption scandals surrounding that, uh, as opposed to the appointed judges, where there it seems to be better. The New York State uh, Court of Appeals, the highest court, doesn't have elections; they have appointments, and they seem to be well respected generally. Um, but it, it is a it's a matter of debate whether. Uh, a, ju- a judicial officer should be elected. Uh, is this a good thing? Is it good that they are 
influenced by voter opinion? Well, some people would say, yes, you know, they should be. They should be aware of what the, the will of the voters and the will of the populace is. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if they're changing their opinions, maybe that's not a good thing. We've been debating this for quite some time, and I suspect that we will continue to do so. Thanks so much for your input, Joshua. That's Joshua Spivak. He's a senior fellow at the Hugh L. Carey Institute for Government Reform at Wagner College. The stakes are very high in a Missouri trial where J&J is defending itself against claims that it sold its iconic baby powder knowing it caused ovarian cancer. It's the biggest trial yet in the recent wave of cases against J&J. 22 women are trying to link their illnesses to exposure to asbestos in the company's talc. Joining me is Howard Erickson, a professor at Fordham Law School. Howard, will you explain how the allegations here are slightly different than in other trials? Yes. In, in this case, the plaintiff's lawyer, Mark Lanier, is, um, is pushing a theory that, as, that traces of asbestos in talcum powder caused ovarian cancer in these 22 women. Um, and that's a theory that hasn't been used in the, in the prior ovarian cancer cases. So is that a risky theory? Well, I suppose it, I, I think it's a smart theory uh, because there have been recent um, plaintiff's verdicts in cases involving mesothelioma, that is an asbestos-linked uh, type of cancer. Uh, and I think, uh, I think the plaintiff's lawyer in this case is hoping that those prior verdicts that have found that um, there were traces of asbestos in, uh, in talcum powder, um, hoping that will play out Um, similarly in the ovarian cancer cases. But it does require new science, and it remains to be seen whether the jury will believe it. Mark, you mentioned him. Uh, Lanier is representing the women, and he's one of the preeminent plaintiff's lawyers in the country. Billions of dollar verdicts are par for the course with him. Is his presence changing the scenario or changing it up a little? Well, he's he's a big-time trial lawyer. I mean, this is... uh, this is a big trial. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, it is the biggest um, case to go to trial in the in the talcum powder litigation with 22 plaintiffs and all that. Uh, so this is really this is the big at bat, and they are bringing up um, you know the home run hitter. Um, and and as you say, he is accustomed to winning big verdicts in mass tort cases. It is his first talc trial, however. Now. Is this case going to be about the science and what the jury believes about the science, or will it be about documentation of whether or not J&J knew its product contained asbestos? I have to assume the plaintiffs will want to emphasize what J&J knew, um, because you can always find a memo somewhere showing that someone at a company was worried about something. I assume the defendant, J&J, will want to emphasize the science and the, you know, what is very much an open question of, and, and something that it's not clear the plaintiffs can prove, that is the causal link between talcum powder and ovarian cancer. Have there have been many trials in different states, plaintiffs' verdicts, seems defense verdicts, appeals. Can you summarize where the litigation stands? Is one side clearly winning most of the cases, or is it harder to read than that? Uh, it's, 
you cannot say that one side is clearly winning. What you can say is that in other states, particularly New Jersey and California, um, the defendants have had more success. And in Missouri, plaintiffs have had a lot of success. This case, of course, is happening in St. Louis, Missouri, which is exactly where the plaintiffs want to be. So, Howard, why are, are plaintiffs having more success in Missouri than in California and New Jersey? Jurisdictions vary. The, uh, I mean, they vary in some of their procedural rules. For instance, Missouri is pretty liberal about allowing joinder, and that's one reason this case is going forward with 22 plaintiffs. Uh, they vary in the judges. And Judge Burleson, um, who is overseeing this case, has overseen other cases that have ended up with plaintiff verdicts, and, and they differ in jury demographics. And I think the, um, I think the plaintiffs were happy to, uh, to try as many of these cases in St. Louis as possible. Now, let's talk about how these cases might affect a settlement of some kind down the road. Are, have, we seen, have they seen enough of these cases to know where they're going, or are they going to have to try a lot more in different states? Uh, mass torts vary. There are, there are mass tort litigations in which um, the parties are able to reach a global settlement before there is a single trial verdict. Um, this one has now seen a number of trial verdicts, but um, but there's there's no sign yet of any sort of global settlement. Um, you know, obviously, the outcome of a case like this will have an enormous bearing on the settlement negotiation dynamics, um, which is I mean, the stakes are high, not simply because it is a 22 plaintiff case with um, with a lot of money at stake in this judgment. Um, the stakes are also high because this is going to change the momentum one way or another in terms of settlement negotiations. Howard, is this similar in any way to the tobacco litigation? In the, in, and that, by that I mean that the cases are tried, you hear about verdicts, and then there's an appeal after an appeal after an appeal, and you, you know, down the road no one is getting paid a- any settlement. Mm. Well, to the tobacco, <laughs> the, the, the Maybe tobacco I stretched it too much went, there. Right. The tobacco litigation went decades without a penny being paid. And then all of a sudden in the 1990s, things kind of turned around with the, with the attorney general cases. I think this is a bit different. I think this is following a path more like the Vioxx litigation or other pharmaceutical mass torts, where there are a number of cases, but it's all moving very quickly. This is really just the past couple of years. The number of cases has exploded. Um, and the trials are moving quickly. So it seems to me the pace of this is all really quite quick. And um, so look down the road. We have about 35 seconds here. How, how long before we see some kind of definitive move or a payment or something like that? I, uh, you can't predict when J&J is going to decide um, that there is an appealing settlement to be had. It seems to me all eyes right now are on this trial, which could last a month, and how this jury reacts to the scientific evidence. Well, we always appreciate your coming on with these mass tort cases, which is your expertise. That's Howard Erickson, a professor at Fordham Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.